0: Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu, and you can find me at www.AboutSexPodcast.com or www.TherapistInStLouis.com. Now, today, we're speaking with Janelle Marie Pierce, who is an executive director of the STI Project, an adjunct, adjunct, I don't know why I said adjunct, adjunct professor and spokesperson for Positive Singles. Um, hi, Janelle. Hi, Janelle. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I'm so glad you're here. Well, so why don't you tell us a little more about what you do and take it away?
1: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. It may be my pleasure to. So I've been doing this work. um, I'm a sexual health educator who specializes in STIs. That's the niche in which... I work and focus, of course, you know, there's all the that, that crosses over into a lot of other things that are related to sexual health in general, but that's my primary focus. And um, I've been doing this for over eight years, going on nine. I've been in the public health sector for over a decade, and um, the STI project is primarily a website. We're on all social media channels, and really it's just an educational platform, I guess not just because that's important, but it is an educational platform with the intention of promoting awareness and um, that centralized on education and then acceptance for folks who have STIs because I'm living with an STI. I have genital herpes and I've had it since I was 16 years old. And my experience when I contracted it and thereafter was really it was a big struggle for me and the shame and fear and the stigma associated with contracting a taboo infection. I wanted to make sure that other people didn't have to go through that as severely as I did. So essentially, it's a resource. The STI project, the intention behind it was to create a resource, the same resource that I needed when I was diagnosed years ago. And so now that, now we've been doing that for a while. And um, as a result of that, I'm also, I teach. Uh, at colleges and universities and guest speak. And then I'm also the spokesperson, as you mentioned, for Positive Singles, which is a website for folks who have STIs. So I wear a few different hats, but ultimately, it's um, the intention is to reclaim the narrative and to change uh, the misconceptions and perceptions around STIs and the people who have them.
0: So I have a quick, well, I always have a long question. Actually, that's a lie. <laughs> but... So I'm curious, and it can be your story or the stories you've heard of, but what are some of the stigmas that people who are positive face?
1: Yes, and it's really very similar for a lot of folks across the board. I mean, it's just, you know, with stigma and with um, a lack of information and misinformation, like your kind of, your question Could be that, yes, a lot of people experience, depending on which community you're a part of, what your identities are, you may have a totally different experience. But for folks who have an STI, because the stigma is so pervasive across all cultures, across the globe, no matter what age group, which demographic, which community you're part of, what identity you hold, what identity or identities you hold, then it's just a, the stigma is so, as such that people feel as if they, once they contract an STI, they're dirty, they're damaged goods. They are identified as sluts and whores and of course these are all subjective terms um, that really don't make any sense and are really sex negative and, and harmful and very and very problematic but that is truly the result is as, as soon as someone gets diagnosed, they are absolutely in this like shock and disbelief and Um, in turmoil. It's like a tailspin into the assumption that I'm never going to be able to have sex again. I'm never going to be able to have a partner who's interested in me and wants to be with me and can accept this diagnosis. I mean, there's just so many. It goes on and on and on. And it's for most folks who contract an STI, normally I don't like to group and say everybody experiences this. But for most folks who contract an STI, they experience a myriad of the things that I just mentioned.
0: You know, one thing I was curious about for my audience listeners, actually, is um, could you do a list of some of the STIs and just some basic information about some of them? Because I realize, you know, with misinformation comes like some people just don't know, really don't know which ones are there and um, what treatments are available, you know, so I know this is a big question again, but like, what are some of the STIs that people face and what are some of the pieces of information you would want listeners to know about them.
1: For sure. I love that question because um, I typically answer in big answers anyhow. There are just so many pieces. You know, I often get questions like, you know, what's the risk of someone who is polyamorous or someone who is engaging in this kind of activity? And it's not that simple. None of the, when we're talking about STIs, because of the vast array. So this leads right into, there are 30 plus STIs. Most people okay. are only aware of like four to five. An STI panel, when you say, test me for all mm-hmm. the things. And for most folks don't even get tested regularly if they've ever been tested at all. But when folks get tested and they say, I want to be tested for everything, test me for all the STIs, you can't actually get tested for all STIs. There either aren't tests available for them, they're not actually diagnosed in an actual testing kind of process. It's... Um, You either have to have signs or symptoms Mm -hmm. or the test is not readily available. It's not accessible
0: in terms of a price point. All right. Now, before we get into this next conversation, I just want to stop to give us a word from our new sponsors. So I am now working with a really cool company called Let's Get Checked. You can find them at trilgc.com slash stay kinky. What's really cool about this company actually is that they're doing testosterone testing for men and hormone checks for men and women. A lot of people are struggling with hormonal imbalances and reduced testosterone levels, which really can impact your sex life. And so more and more men and women are trying to test their hormone levels to see how they're doing. One in four men over 30 are actually low in testosterone. Symptoms you might want to look at include fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, even having a hard time making decisions, which is basically most of my client population. (laughs) Just teasing. But I mean, enough of you who come see me are actually really struggling with testosterone levels in your sex drive. So what's cool about this group is you can pick from either a male hormone test kit, a female hormone test kit, or an STD test kit. And what's really cool is they send it right to you in your home. You do what you need to do to take the test. And depending on what test you use, you'll either have to do a blood sample or a blood sample anti urine sample. And then you send it back and everything's completely confidential. And basically they deliver to your home, they collect your sample, they review your results for you. So depending on what happens with your test, they may provide a prescription in some cases. Usually it would only be for something like if they're treating STDs. If you do end up having some Something longer term like hormone therapy, then you'll likely be referred to a longer term provider. But at least you'll know where you stand. So it's really cool. Your results are available and they'll be reviewed by a physician. And then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. The Let's Get Checked Laboratories are CLIA approved and everything is completely anonymous. So again, that website is slash stay kinky and use the coupon code stay kinky to get 20% off. Janelle, continue. Uh, Thank you from our sponsors. So tell us more about the STIs and how people can be tested.
1: Yes. So there are, and I'll bet, let me go backward just a step before we talk about testing. There are three different general types of STIs. There are bacterial STIs, viral STIs, and parasitic STIs. Most bacterial and parasitic STIs are curable and they do not last a long period of time as long as they are detected and diagnosed and then treated. The viral infections are the ones that either are long-term or forever, and um, that's also why... Testing is so important because the vast majority of the signs and symptoms, the most common signs and symptoms of any STI is no sign or symptoms. Most people are totally unaware that they have an STI when they do, and the only way to know is to get tested, even though, like I said, that there are, even though you can't get tested for all the infections, and if you get like a panel... At a public health department, a Planned Parenthood, even your general practitioner, typically that tests for about four to five infections, which include HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Those are the four you always see. Every once in a while, they also test for hep B or hep C. Sometimes they test for trichomoniasis or TRIC for short. Um, And then the ones that you can find online, you can do private testing, either out of the comfort of your own home or going to a lab and having it ordered. Those are the more um, expensive options, but you can get tested then for a lot more infections. Oftentimes then you can select to get tested for herpes, HSV-1 and 2, um, and then all hepatitis A, B, and C, as well as intestinal parasites. And then a couple of others. So if you want to be tested for as many things as possible, then the route to go is going to be the less accessible in terms of financial, um, in, ten- in terms of the financial responsibility is going to be an online kind of provider. But then you get to hand pick which infections, especially if you have been engaging in sexual activity with someone who you know has a specific infection. And then for like some of the free places or the low cost or income-based places, they're not offering that kind of testing, then an online provider is going to be really helpful for that because you can actually say, yes, this is what I'd like to be tested for because this person that I've been with, I know has this infection, especially like with where herpes is concerned. Herpes is one of the most highly stigmatized Mm -hmm. of all the STIs and it's a forever infection. It's not curable, but it's not part of a typical STI panel. You explicitly have to ask to be tested for it. And even if you ask to be tested for it from like a general practitioner, a health department, they either one, don't have the tests accessible, you have to pay for them, or they are not going to test you or they are reticent to do so because blanket testing for herpes, Both kinds, HSV-1 and HSV-2, is not actually currently recommended right now by the CDC. So that doesn't typically happen, and for a few different reasons, but um, usually unless you know you've been exposed or you have symptoms, that's the only way to get tested. So that's where the kind of the online providers can be really helpful, too, because if you really just want to make sure and you want to know your status in terms of HSV-1 or HSV-2, herpes simplex virus 1 and herpes simplex virus 2, then an online provider is going to be an option.
0: All right, so Janelle, uh, you've been talking about some of the different STIs. I was thinking a little bit about herpes and what are some of the misunderstandings people have about that since there seems to be a lot of stigma around that. So what are some of the misunderstandings around herpes for why it's such a difficult one for somebody to contract?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a really good question too. So some of the misunderstandings kind of speak to what I've already said in terms of the typical um, the typical signs or symptoms. And it's that most people assume that they'll know if they have it, like, oh, I'll know that I if I have it because I'll see blisters and my genitals will look horrible or, um, or mm-hmm. I'm not sleeping with these kinds of her, engaging in sexual activities with these kinds of people because I'll be able to tell if they have it. And the vast majority of people who have herpes either strain Um, or I'm sorry, either type, don't actually have signs or symptoms or recognizable, noticeable signs or symptoms that they they think is going to be a typical herpes outbreak. So what we assume is like a typical herpes outbreak is a cluster of small, tiny blisters that can be kind of painful. They start out itchy and then they become painful. um, And then that goes away over about a period of seven to 10 days. However, A lot of people are asymptomatic carriers. And so this is kind of timely with everything that we're learning about COVID-19. The, a, the word asymptomatic has become a part of our zeitgeist, and now we understand that asymptomatic means you can be a carrier, you can transmit it to somebody else, and the person who contracts it from you may not be asymptomatic. They actually may have signs or symptoms or, or ramifications from a physical standpoint of that infection, and the same applies to herpes, genital, oral, HSV-1, and HSV-2. And of course, HSV-1 and HSV-2 can be in either location, either genital or either oral um, so yeah, so it applies for both types of herpes simplex virus that you can have it and totally not know. So I think that's the biggest misconception is that we, and I even assumed that at 16 years old, I was like, we, I just didn't feel like I was at risk. I knew about STIs and at the time then it was STDs and, um, and we still use those interchangeably, but at the time it was STDs, primarily STIs hadn't even been talked about or that term anyways, that did the distinction between the two and i thought that only certain kinds of people contract it and then herpes on top of just the overall assumption that oh i'm not engaging in activities with those kinds of people or i'll know for sure because i'll be able to tell on top of that herpes is lifelong and for the vast vast majority of people they have very little physical uh, signs or symptoms and/or problems. So there's not a long term, like there's not a risk of death. Um, there's very little risk to children and transmitting it to others or having any sort of large complications as a result of the infection. So it's re- it's relatively benign and quite relatively benign for most people because mm. there's not just there's just not a lot of issue with it. It's just a skin condition for the vast majority of people and it's a nuisance if you do have signs or symptoms and it can be uncomfortable, but that's about it. So it's easy for popular culture to use it as like a scapegoat, the butt of all jokes, because there aren't big long-term ramifications um, to one's health. And so it's so easy to use it as a way in which to shame somebody and to talk about their character and their morality Mm -hmm. and their ethics and um, and their sexual behavior, basically. So that makes it even worse, the fact that it is relatively mild for most people, which it seems like the opposite would be true then. But that's why it ends up being part of our pop culture, part of our media and the, how it's represented in the media as such a, um, you know, herpes is the butt of all jokes. It's the last bastion of acceptable shaming
0: interesting you know as you were talking I was I was thinking about this um, positive singles thing that you um, it's a website yeah that you organize and I was curious um, so what what kind of issues then do people face when they're trying to date and why positive singles? why is that why did you find a need to create that? Well,
1: I didn't create it. Positive positive Singles has been around for longer um, than I've been actually doing this work. Positive Singles is a dating platform for specifically targeted um, to help support folks who have an STI. So basically, the number one fear that when anyone contracts an STI and then I I do individual consultations and we do interviews on my website and on the STI project, the STI project is what I created. And so I just am a spokesperson on behalf of Positive Singles. And, and that's because oh, the gotcha. n- number one question that people have is, how am I going to disclose? How am I going to tell a new partner who is ever going to be okay with this and be able to accept this? And, um, and I guess kind of to circle back to one of your questions initially was, you know, like, tell us some things that people need to know about STIs. The vast majority of people over 80% of all people contra- of all sexually active people contract an STI at some point in their lives so the idea then that wow. is, I didn't even know that blows your mind. Right. So <laughs>
0: interesting. this, I don't know. I mean like, Okay. That's good to know. Cause it's like, it's all of us. <laughs> yes. Yes. And that's fine. I'm just wanting to know that it's so
1: true. <laughs> and the vast majority of people don't realize it. Everyone feels so isolated and they feel like they're the only ones are the only ones in their social circles. They're the only ones in their peers, their mentors. Like they don't know anybody because no one's talking about it. And, and it's just like, it's so shocking when I first started doing this Work, how many people came out of the woodwork and told me their stories? And it's all people who I went to school with, I went to college with, I was working alongside in the healthcare industry and it's and you just want to like because i can't share that of course they're sharing confidential information and pouring it out to me because i'm public about my status you just wish that everybody else knew cuz you could just say like everybody you know or darn near everybody you know has had this experience but no one's talking about it so it feels so isolating you feel it like you are a pariah and and that's part of what that's part of what the stigma does and that's part of why stigma continues is because of that that silence and that shame around these stigmatized subjects and in particular STIs, of course. But yeah, I mean, it blows your mind. So normally I don't center on statistics because statistics can be problematic and harmful if we don't frame them with the correct context. And especially when we're talking about STIs, that happens very regularly when you see headlines about, it's an epidemic and they're higher than they've ever been. And you, they're not actually looking at the fine print and talking about well, why. Well, they
0: change and they come from different research. Yeah, absolutely. No, like there's different kinds of research and there's different bodies that do it and not everybody is accredited. And you're going to get like 50 different, pers- like when I wrote my book on infidelity, I had like 15 different potential statistics on how many people cheated on each other for example so it's like that's part of what you know like I think people will use them intentionally to kind of color the work or color what it looks like and I just think it it's 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 a lot. We'll just say it was a lot of people mm-hmm. <laughs> that have STIs and you have 80% from somewhere, but all, at the same time, it's hard to know exactly what those percentages are because also it's something that's taboo. So my guess is people are very quiet about it, like you said. And so it's not like everybody's just like marking yes, yes, <laughs> publicly, right? <laughs> exactly.
1: And the number so is likely been- much higher. So like, So to that point, When we talk about like, so I had said that there were over 30 STIs, right? According to the World Health Organization, there are at least 30 and they say over 30 that they've identified. One of those STIs is HPV, the human papillomavirus. And the human papillomavirus, there are two different general categories of HPV, two different types. There are not different types, I'm sorry, two different categories. There's high risk and low risk. The low risk Strains and the, uh, or sorry, the low risk types. There's strains, there's sub, there's sub strains. The low risk types are all they all cause um, genital warts or warts in terms of HPV. There are over a hundred different types of HPV, and there are over um, thirty to forty that are sexually transmitted. So of the HPVs that are sexually transmitted, there's high risk and low risk, and the high risk kinds can potentially cause cancer. The vast majority of them don't, but they can lead to cancer. So that said, just so there's some background info on HPV, and HPV is the most common STI of all STIs. Over 80% of all people contract HPV by the age of 50, or I'm sorry, all sexually active people. Over 80% of all sexually active people contract HPV by the age of 50. So that's 1 out of 30 plus STIs. So if 80% of all people contract, of all sexually active people, I keep having to qualify this, Of all sexually active people contract HPV okay. by 50, <laughs> it's, I want to make sure I'm being accurate and not misspeaking. But so then if we add all the other infections, and herpes is super common, and we all add all those other infections very, Way more than 80% of all people can, of all sexually active people, contract an STI. So that's why it's important to state that because everyone feels like it's so, we know that the vast majority of all sexually active people contract an STI. It's just most don't know it. And so then they contract one, and then to come all the way back, long story short, to your question about dating, that's the biggest fear. It's about like, dating, <laughs> it's like what were we talking about?
0: <laughs> I learned. I've learned that you, you, yeah, you. I've, I'm starting to create an image of how you talk, and it looks like a bush. And you start outlining it this way and this way, and then you come back around to the root, and then that's when you get to the, <laughs> the yeah But it's very important information. So I'm happy with what you're doing. Just keep going. So good. about dating, <laughs>
1: I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I'm a macro thinker. When I took economics, they wanted us to take micro. Economics I first and <laughs> I like the bigger picture and then like let's bring it down and make it relevant to what yeah, we're about. Yeah, so talking you
0: preface about. everything. You're like, wait, before I answer this directly, I need to give you a full preface and a history. <laughs> exactly. teasing. I kinda talk like that too, so you're fine. <laughs> I appreciate All right, so it. So dating. Yes, Tell me about yes. dating. <laughs> so dating
1: in the positive singles. Now, I've sometimes I get pushback for being the spokesperson of positive singles, of like, are you saying that only people with this infection can date only other people with that infection? And that's absolutely not what I think whatsoever. I don't think that people have to self-segregate, mostly because the vast majority of people contract an STI and it might not even be the same STI. And so The one thing though, I think that's somewhat nice about a platform like that is because I recognize and I deal with folks who are living that initial. Fear and that absolute, like, cannot imagine having to have this conversation with a new partner and having to potentially experience rejection as a result of disclosing. So, because that is that number one fear, sometimes these platforms that are specific to STIs, and, and you can find somebody who has the same STI. It's a way to get your feet wet again, but I absolutely do not think that people need to self-segregate because that just doesn't even—that's not really practical, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense long term. But it, it sometimes helps people to like get their groove back. Like, okay, I'm—I'm I'm the same person that I was. This is a thing I have, not a thing I am therefore mm-hmm. now how do i how do i start having this conversation in the broader general public it's a way in which to kind of start it and practice it and talk about it and whatever because even on these platforms yes you can check a box and say i have hsv2 and it's on; it's genitally located. But you're relying on them to be telling the truth about that, to know exactly that information. Then, then, when have they recently been tested? Have do they have they had anything else? Have they been tested since they've had another partner? There's still a sexual health conversation that is helpful, and that I would suggest, no matter whether you're on an, a platform specific to STIs or you're out in the, just the general dating population. So. But that's why that, that Janelle, becomes Can I a ask need. you?
0: Can I ask you what do you think people should do? Oh no, sure. So, Janelle, I'm curious. Do you think that, um, like, what do you think is the way to bring it up with a new partner? Because I get asked this question a lot, and I don't know if I have the best answer. So, like, say you are you're you are getting your feet wet, as you say in the dating pool. What whether it's on a group like this or. um a positive singles website, or even if it's just getting out there and dating again, but trying it on your own, what what kind of conversation, what does it need to look like?
1: Well, and I think that's, I'm glad you asked because I don't think that anyone should, <clears throat> excuse me, anyone should do anything in a particular way, or I, I don't think it needs necessarily to look a specific way. And I think that that's what, there's no one answer, but but I can actually, I can help narrow it down to give some ideas. Because outside of, if you have an infection and you're aware of the infection that you have and you've been tested and diagnosed, even if you don't, haven't been tested and diagnosed, but you know you have it because you engage in activities with somebody and you have the same symptoms or something, you you do need to in terms of need in terms of informed consent you do have to disclose to that to a new partner mm-hmm. before putting them at risk that's the only area in which i would say a need is required but when i'm when talking about sexual health i typically try to stray stay away from absolutes like always should or need um, and should actually isn't an absolute, but that's a, that's a dictation, like me deciding what somebody
0: else needs to do with their body and for their safety. And so, well, well, should does sound like shame. Like the reason why should, you know, it's like you should, sh- shouldn't you do that? Like there's an element of shame to it. That's why that particular phrase kind of yes. comes across that way for people, because then you feel bad about yourself if you didn't do it the way you should have. Exactly. Um, Just to throw that in there. Oh, I totally agree. So I totally even agree. giving, General guidelines, but openness. Like, people really do want to know the like some words, some ideas. So, when you talk to people about that, what are general guidelines but not like you should do it this way because I'm definitely hearing you're, you're saying it's okay like do it in whatever way feels right to you mm-hmm. and people still need words yes. <laughs> so what do you think are <laughs> helpful approaches? So how do we marry those
1: two <laughs> ideas right exactly so um, there are two general right? schools of thought in terms of disclosure around disclosing your STI. Some people really like to do it right up front right out the gate whether it's on an STI dating platform or it's on their Tinder profile or the moment that they meet someone and they start to even feel a slight bit of interest, or especially in a casual a casual hookup environment, um, putting it right out there right from the start, and then letting that person decide: do we continue to move forward? Some people prefer that. There and these there's two, and it's six to one, half a dozen of the other, because there's benefits and negatives to both. The other approach is waiting until. You've established a certain level of trust and a certain level of interest in that potential individual or individuals and then disclosing, of course, before you engage in sexual activity, but still waiting for that relationship to develop a little bit and again for the trust factor to come into play. And so when we look at those two options sometimes people, the benefit of doing it right out the gate and up front is that the individual who's disclosing has, at that point in theory, has less of an emotional investment in that other individual or individuals. And so the the risk to them emotionally, if there is a rejection, is lower. Um, However, the risk... There's also an additional risk if you don't know that person or persons very well and they're, and if you don't want your status being shared very publicly or with a lot of people. So there's a concern that if you don't necessarily have that trust established at some level, then they may end up telling someone in your social circle or somebody else or whatever. So that can go in both directions. And then the same applies in the other way. For If you've already established some some level of interest as, as well as trust, you may be a little bit more emotionally invested. It may break your heart a little bit more if that person decides not to move forward. Um, but then at that point in time, you may be able to feel better about sharing that information and having it not be broadcasted publicly or just even within groups and social circles and things. So that's the general idea behind the two approaches. And then the conversation, um, mm. I think... I usually give about, there's eight tips that I think is important when we're talking about having that discussion. And first, it's, of course, disclosing to someone before putting them at risk. Then making sure that you're fully clothed and sober when you're having the discussion. And not because you can't engage in activities with substances, but that's a separate side conversation. But when we're talking about disclosure and fully informed consent, um, we need people to be not already physically engaging and not already mentally altered um, to be able to make that decision and say and say confidently whether or not they want to move forward. Then, um I say, pick an environment. yeah,
0: Janelle, just to throw something in there about that. Sure, hold on. keep uh, keep that thought, but like, I just I want to throw something in there for why. I think once people start to engage, um, I mean, we all know that your filters kind of go away. And then sometimes, like if you were fully, Um, like fully sober and you're thinking about that, you may decide to wait. But like when people have been drinking for a while, they'll be like, all right, it's fine. You know, like just think of making better decisions or at least conscious decisions about what is best for you in that situation. But when drinking, you know, I know it is a separate conversation, but it's just an important one that I want to make sure is (laughs) coming out there. Like, People need to be having consensual conversations while still sober. All right, continue. (laughs) Yes,
1: totally agree. And the same applies with clothing, too, because once you already start – the chemicals change in your body once you already start engaging in sexual activity um, and clothes start coming off and you're already um, sharing your body and touching and – going to that level, then again, your decision-making changes. So both of those things are important. Now, once you've established a relationship and you decide Absolutely. to make decisions while unclothed and if you decide to engage in substances, um, I think that's up to each person and persons to make to decide what is going to work for their relationship and their bodies and what's going to be safest for them. But if, But when we're talking about disclosing an STI status, that definitely has to happen before those things occur. And then I think picking the environment. Absolutely,
0: because when I see somebody naked, I can't stop. Yes. <laughs> I just really like it. Amen. I'm a physical, I totally or get Like it. a like visual when I'm, person. When I'm so. there, I'm like, oh yeah, yes. So as soon as somebody's naked, like it's all bets are off. I don't care what's going on. So I totally get it. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> It's exactly right.
0: right, So continue. So then after that, what are some of the other suggestions?
1: So other suggestions would be finding an environment that is going to be safest for you. So for the person who is disclosing. And a lot of the onus and the pressure always feels like it's on the person who has the STI. Like now you're this person, this monster, this issue that society has to consider and, and wonder and this risk. And the actual, it goes in both directions because once you have one STI, you're just as likely or you're more likely to contract another. And then you care, the person who has an STI, their their sexual health, their feeling good about their decisions and what they're going to do moving forward with these this person or persons is just as important as the person who is deciding whether they want to move forward with your known status. And sometimes, it and this is oftentimes, the person who knows their status has is a, a little bit safer Um than a person who doesn't and who hasn't been tested and who has not had any signs or symptoms. Because Janelle they really don't know. Janelle,
0: can I ask you something? Sure. Janelle, I want to ask you something about that. Why is one person so you just you said something a second ago. You said that when you get one STI, you're more likely to get another. Why?
1: Good question. So that is for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, it's because if you have any signs or symptoms, and some they don't have to necessarily be noticeable, but that puts you that um, that can create an entry point, or for opportunistic infections, for one infection to enter or to infect somebody else, or to infect you who already has an infection. So, like here's a here's a specific example. So, some folks with herpes will get just tiny little small cuts and tears that they don't even recognize as like a traditional herpes outbreak like blisters. And so they're not even necessarily noticing or realizing that they're having an outbreak at that point in time, but that outbreak is an entry point into the system and allows for additional pathogens to to enter into the system and to potentially infect. So the same applies for other infections too because of the signs or symptoms that they cause. So a lot of it just has to deal with the, what one infection will do Presents an opportunity for another infection to come in and enter the body. It makes it a little bit easier for that to happen. You
0: know, I really think every time I hear that word opportunistic, I think of capitalist people because it's like, you know, it's like I see an opportunity and I want to make some money here. And here's a person who's already got an open, like an opening. So I don't know. Every time I hear that word, I think of like, all right, here's somebody coming to make some money, <laughs> but anyhow, I'm just teasing. Yeah. All right. Well, so what's another one of the um, what's one another one of the um, the suggestions for when people are telling a new partner?
1: Yes. So, so definitely a, a situation, a, an environment that's safest for you, and so that can be via. Some people are traditionalists, and they think that this conversation always has to happen face to face. And I'm not of that mindset. I think that the person has to assess based on what um, the relationship dynamic is, what is accessible to them, what feels safest to them. And so that might be an anonymous message through one of the anonymous services that notify partners. It might be a text message. It might be a phone conversation. It might be an online chat box. It could be whatever feels like this is going to be the safest environment for me to have this discussion with this individual. And then... From there, the individual who's disclosing gets to decide how much information they share. So that's another tip. And the reason I say that is because a lot of times people will, I answer this question regularly just because this is what I do for a living, but people will say, well, who did you get it from? How, um, how long have you had it? when did it happen? What were you doing? Why did this happen? And they start asking questions that aren't necessarily relevant to that current situation and that current relationship. And really the person who's disclosing all that, the, the only thing ethically that they are responsible of disclosing is their status itself, that I have this infection. And whatever else they want to share is entirely up to them. They don't have to tell the person how many partners they've had. They don't have to say what kind of sex they were having. A lot of times people don't know those answers either when they contracted the infection and exactly how and from whom and so on and so forth. So that's important to, to empower the, I think it's important to empower the individual who has the infection to let them know that the, their, the information about their sexual history is theirs unless they would like to share it. If that makes sense.
0: Janelle, let me stop you there for a second. It does. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about when you said that is how um, how to let the other person know that you're just not wanting to share that other information. So um, when I have people disclose different issues in their lives, so I'm a therapist, you know, and there's different issues that people sometimes have to disclose. And one of the things I will guide them to do is just simply dis- tell the person here's what I'm willing to talk about and here's what I'm really not willing to talk about upfront. Um, so you're kind of guiding the conversation. Um, so I, you know, whether it's saying, uh, I do want to disclose that I have a STI or if it's the specific one, if they want to like knowing that that's in their choice, but also knowing that I really don't want to go like putting it right out there up front. Like I don't really want to go into the history or how I contracted it, but I do need you to know this part. Um, because, um, because obviously, you know, if we're going to be intimate, then I need, I need us to have a conversation about what that looks like. Um, so guiding people toward, you can guide partners towards what you do want to talk about versus things that you're just not ready to share. Because ultimately, that information you're describing is pretty personal. And it may not be a first date conversation. It may not even, in some relationships, maybe you'll never share it. And, and others, maybe you will, but it still is your choice to decide what, what and when that information comes out. Does that make sense? 100%.
1: I'm sitting here nodding. I wish we I wish I could see you on video or you know, I was in person in the studio because absolutely <laughs> yeah. everything You're you You're like, just "Yes, said, yes, I appreciate." Mm-hmm. I 100% <laughs> co-sign that. And the in, in the language you use, I think was good. You know, here's what I'm here's what I'm willing to share and this is something that I'm, you know, not interested in talking about right now and it's, you know, it's not to close off this conversation, but um, these are my boundaries or this is what I'm comfortable sharing right now and this is what I'm not comfortable sharing, but I would like to have a discussion and um, and see where that goes. I do think the specific STI, which one is important because that changes how the STI might be managed, whether they're taking um, – whether they're sure. taking prescription to reduce further infection, or their signs or symptoms, or transmission risk, and things like that. So that still is relevant, but that's really it. Beyond that, it's up to each individual. And I think you can say it in a way that doesn't close down the conversation, but also um, also is is a is an empowering, strong, and taking your own autonomy back of your body and what's going on in the decisions that are being made for yourself and others. And it's not just a, now people who have an STI, like I said, feel so much like they just hope that maybe somebody will accept it. And if that person is even willing to consider it, then they just have to do or say whatever it is, that this other person wants because they're just so darn lucky that somebody was willing to even have this conversation with them. And that's not the case because, going way, way back, but because we know so many people have had an STI and so many people are living with long-term or forever infections, that, that then we'd all be single. We'd all have zero partners ever if, that, if, if it were so unlikely for somebody to be accepting of that and want to move forward and Um, So we know that that's not the case. So we don't just have to accommodate and submit to whatever this individual or individuals might be interested in or might want to talk about just because they are interested in having that conversation to begin with.
0: Yeah, I just think it's so important for people to have autonomy over their information and to learn that you're allowed to have boundaries. I mean, a big part of what I do as a therapist is help people figure out what are those boundaries and when is somebody pushing too hard for information. And I don't think I don't think people it, people do this in intentionally or to be rude. Or, you know, like because I've worked with so many people, I just think it's this natural curiosity that we have of like, oh, well, what is this and what does this mean? And um, with working with so many people who are dealing with so many shameful different issues, you know, like that's kind of my job, right? Is um, recognizing that like when people feel in control of how they give that information and how they share, but also like giving people guidance and how they can help them or be supports, that seems to help them a little bit more than feeling like they, like um, one of my number one questions for multiple problems is, what do I need to say or what should I not say? Who should I tell? Who should I not tell? When? Why? You know, like I've just heard that conversation about like 10 different things. (laughs) So anyhow, I love that you're mentioning that and I'm just asking you, so you know, we are getting close to time on the episode. So maybe one or two more. We might not get to the end, though, <laughs> just for your awareness. Yes. Janelle. And actually... So what is one or two more we're suggestions? almost at the end of the oh, suggestion.
1: Yeah, so the good news is, <laughs> even though I tell these long, oh, long good. stories and answers, <laughs> we're actually news. almost at the end of this conversation or this part of that, you know, the disclosure Perfect. conversation. So the other, the other suggestions would be to do your very best to stay calm and confident. And this doesn't always work, especially with folks who are newly diagnosed. And if you are emotional, it's okay to to be emotional and to experience that. And however it is um, that it comes out, you're auth- authentically, that's okay. Um, but the more that you practice and the more that you have an opportunity to have the conversation, the easier it is to even abide by that or even try to encompass that tip into your disclosure conversation. But part of the reason why staying calm and confident is is beneficial is because that also showcases to the other person or persons that this is not the end of the world. It's not as melodramatic as our culture would have us believe and that it doesn't actually really impact or change a whole lot of things and, or it doesn't have to. And so at this point in time, you just need to have this conversation like a sensible and responsible um, and thoughtful individual, the thoughtful and sensible and responsible individual that you are. So that would be that's. Third to last, then I'd I say share a resource or two, one that is like a vetted factual, like the CDC or American Sexual Health Association. And then I also think another one to share that's helpful is usually like an advocacy platform. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be my own, but more like a storytelling that, that provides a human piece to this very oftentimes sterilizing and clinical conversation. And so that helps to open, I think, Open minds and just give a different perspective other than the just the factual stuff that we see regurgitated over and over. And then lastly, allow that person space and respect their decision and try not to take it personally as best as you possibly can. That's easier said than done, of course, but it usually is not a reflection of you and your value, your worth, your desirability. It just has a lot to do with their knowledge, their information, where they wanted to head with the relationship. And they just plain and simple just might not be ready for that. And that's okay. There will definitely be others. And that's just one one individual or individual's one occurrence in a a result of very many that can actually possibly happen.
0: So Janelle, I just want to teach a little lesson on how to not take things personally. Actually, because it's something I've been working with a lot of clients on. And so one one skill for anybody who's listening, who's trying to figure some of this out, like how do how do I not take it personally? Because it still feels personal, right? Um, one thing to do is practice a lot of self compassion for your for yourself, like compassion and self compassionate thoughts. So I've been I've been thinking a lot about this. Some compassionate thoughts and very loving thoughts sound like hey, this is, you're doing the best that you can. It's okay that it's okay that this hurt your feelings. It's okay that this didn't work out for you um, because these are the things that like, you have to think of what counters the internal monologue or dialogue that people are telling themselves when they get rejected. So when people get rejected in any way, shape or form, the inner monologue sounds like, Oh God, they didn't like me. I'm a terrible person. Maybe I'm not good enough. My, my darn STI is just, and they might say, damn, I mean, honestly, most people cuss. So, <laughs> like, <laughs> so this is my fuck on SBI and I'm never going to get, you know, so think of all the negative, almost abusive self-talk that people are doing internally essentially. And that is what is creating, taking something personally. And so when you work towards, it's, it's okay to be struggling with this. So it's okay to be sad that this isn't going to move forward. Um, everyone feels lost when they're feeling rejected. Everybody everybody does this, so it's okay for me to feel this for a time. I will be able to move on, even if I'm not moving on now, even though if I'm hurt, like it's okay to take some time to, to grieve this loss. Like it's all very... So compassion talk is very much like deeply accepting whatever feeling you have, showing a lot of love and support. The way I kind of think of it is like, if Danny Tanner from Full House was talking to you, <laughs> you and trying to encourage you and deeply love and support you, that's the language we all have to work on giving ourselves and I mean the Danny Tanner on Full House not him as a comedian cuz a comedian he's kind of a jerk <laughs> but, like, that's so funny but in 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 the show in the show you know what he would have said to Steph you know it's okay, Steph, but like, talk to yourself. And like, I know it sounds silly because people are like, what do you mean talk to myself, Angela? But like, we all talk to ourselves. We have that self monologue and people who are really deeply compassionate towards themselves are able to move forward quicker and less painfully than people who are really abusive and like beat themselves up inside. Um... So any final, any final thoughts you want to share, Janelle, because we are definitely out of time, but I have loved the talk. I feel like I could talk to you for hours about this stuff. But just a final message to any people listening.
1: Yeah, it actually piggybacks off of what you were saying. I really appreciate your your language around this because I think it's so helpful. And I've said this before, but it really makes sense with what you were just saying is that it's okay to feel crappy. It's okay to feel really awful about this diagnosis and to feel like you don't know where you're going to head and what's going to happen next and um and even sometimes you might start to move forward and feel really confident and strong and empowered again and autonomous in yourself and your body and in and, and who you are, and then you revert back like a rejection. Somebody who doesn't want to move forward or someone or some someone or some ones, and then it, it brings you all the way back to almost like your child self and that the Danny Tanner comedian who's mm-hmm. saying these horrible things, <laughs> really crude, and that's just it's it's. It's yeah. all right to feel that way and to be in that space and we we get as a our society tells us that we should always be happy and be positive and positive thinking and the messaging is so problematic mm-hmm. and harmful because we that there's no such thing as 100% always happy. If we were 100% always happy, we wouldn't even understand or recognize the happiness as it was. We wouldn't understand or recognize joy. So we have to have those ebbs and flows and you have to be able to sit in that space and it's okay to feel crappy. It's just not sitting there forever and then saying what do i need going forward how do i move forward from this and how do i acknowledge in respect that these feelings are happening but bad feelings aren't bad inherently it's just what we do with them that can make them bad so if you're not going to do anything with them and you just stay there then then that can become bad and it's harmful for you but it's also okay to feel just like total junk and then you and then to know that and then to acknowledge that and to honor that within yourself i think is so helpful because even just recognizing that and saying that in our verbal and our mental self-talk i think helps us move forward faster in a way that's more empowering so that we feel better about having felt bad if that makes any sense so that would be it's a long it list can you
0: can you give the links for people to find you any links
1: Oh, yes. Um, The STIProject.com is the website. And then if you want to find me on social, wherever you absorb social media, I'm even on TikTok, I'm at the STI Project, So come visit, come say hi. And um, yeah, any way I can help and support, I'm always happy to.
0: All right. Thank you very much. And this has been the About Sex Podcast at www.AboutSexPodcast.com and you can also find me at www.TherapistInStLouis.com. I want to thank you, Janelle Marie Pierce for joining me and to all my listeners out there, stay kinky St. Louis.